Mission Coalition podcast number 37 with Rafael Garcia. Uh, enjoy talking with, uh, with Rafael. Uh, we met a while back. Uh, he's the fight promoter for the uh, WCFL, World Combat Fight League. Super cool dude and uh, Tampa OG. So enjoy. I got you now. Oh, there we there go. You howdy, howdy. How you guys doing? Oh, good. Uh, surviving, preparing yeah. for wave two. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Yeah, our area just voted in masks. So. Trying to figure out how that's all going to work. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us could afford another close down. So. No. No, we, we basically did. We cut all the corners. We. We, we, you know, hit all the safety, you know, the saving accounts and everything else to make it through wave one. So, yeah, wave two is not an option. Yeah, I hear you, man. It sucks. What was it 10, 11 weeks that we had to go? No, no money? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. pretty much. I mean, luckily we had a, we had a, a, a you know, good crew of, of solid academy members and everything else that, that definitely helped out. But... Yeah. <clears throat> lion's share of that came from personal sacrifices and personal accounts to, to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, I had a few. Good. How are you guys doing? I'm trying to get back to normal. Um, you know, I went from 30 kids after school program to five because of all this, because yep. the, the essential parents working. So, um, that was a big uh, hit to the bank account. And then, uh, of course, all the night classes, we had to cancel that. So yep. trying to recoup that. And then, uh, which is kind of weird, I'm still recouping my camp and stuff. I think I have nine kids right now, which I usually have about 30 to 40 kids for camp. But my night classes, I'm signing up a lot of new adults, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, we're yeah. finding the same thing. It's really weird. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, <laughs> well, it's one of those where after you know, the, the first wave, uh, you know, some of the students came back, not, not all of them, you know, there, there's still a portion that are still distancing for, for concerns, you know, elderly grandparents or parents, you know, things of that nature. So there still is definitively a group that has not come back yet. And yeah, we've seen a small number, uh, a reasonable number of actual new, new students starting to, uh, to pop in. And that's where, man, we're like, you know, wave two coming through we're like in any little momentum we think we're building up i'm like i, I don't want to see that crash <laughs> yeah I, I hear you man that's what um kind of all of us are walking on eggshells really not knowing what's going to happen and yep. the numbers they keep on saying jumping up and then it could be a lot of different reasons for that um, i have my opinions uh i think a lot of it's the protesting you know people in large groups that didn't help any. Uh, and then I just think new people being tested, testing yeah. positive. So that's what I think it is. I, I think it's the number. I mean, right now they're they're testing record numbers of people, and the one part that they're not releasing is of the people who are now confirmed cases. How many of them are showing signs that they had it a month ago, and how many of them are actually showing as new cases? I mean, they're they're testing positive. But you know, I, I know a number of people that took the test. And they're like, yeah, they're saying it looks like I had it, you know, maybe a couple months ago. But 
you know, it's definitely not something that they have now, but I'm sure their numbers are being counted. And that's another thing too. It's, if it's, to me, it seems more like the flu, even though I do know people that have passed away or have got really, really sick from it. I think it affects everybody differently, but I think it's something that everybody's going to have at some point or another, and then you build the antibodies to deal with it. So, I mean, it's going to get to the point where, yeah, like we've already talked about, I, you know, the way it's being described, I don't think it's a question of if, I think it's a question of when, um, you know, and, but I mean, the rules keep changing though. I mean, every time I listen to the, to the reports, you know, everything else, it's, you know, they say everything, everything just keeps changing. Yeah. Cause I think we're all in this together. It's something none of us ever experienced. So we're all kind of learning at the same time. Yeah. And everybody's just trying to figure stuff out. And then as soon as someone, oh, that's a good idea. And then a week later, no, 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 that was a bad idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, unfortunately, man, the, the bad part is, is during that whole thing, before any of this stuff happened, I was, I was traveling, I was in Atlanta. And I mean, I, I saw the progression that happened within the week I was there. And I remember telling my group, I'm like, I'm not too concerned about the virus itself, knowing that it's going to be, I hate to say it, but it's going to be a smaller portion of the population. But I'm like, but the economic is going to hit everybody. Yeah. Whether you get the virus or not, the economic side is going to affect you. Um, you know, we've already seen that with, with restaurants in town, um, martial arts schools that are already closed. Yeah. You know, that you know, just within our region, we've already seen a small handful that closed up shop. Some of them for strategic reasons. Basically, they just said, we're going to close up. And when this thing's all said and done, we'll, we'll, th we'll think about doing it. But they're like, I'm not going to blow, you know, $10,000, $20,000 waiting this thing out. Like, you know, I'd rather I'd rather save that money. And others, yeah, just didn't have the savings accounts that they just couldn't survive. Yeah. I know uh, there's a few guys in town that uh, just opened up this year. So I wonder how they're doing. <clears throat> I don't hear too much about them, but uh, that year's tough anyways. That first yeah. year's brutal anyways. Well the yeah, other this question is, is whether or not they got any help from like their landlords or anything else like for us we didn't get any assistance from our landlord rent still due on the first um you know there's no no reduction in no. in overhead so you know yeah. and that's that's a sad part i had a little bit of help i had a because i i have a mortgage on my building so oh, okay. there was a grant that the president signed off on i guess I, that yeah gave me some six months of relief on half of it so I didn't have to pay the full amount every month for six months, which which helped. And then uh, cutting here or there on my car payments and things like that, getting those on like forbearance or whatever. So I don't have to pay those every month till this get back on my feet or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So well, well one of the things that we like to do with the uh, with, with our podcast to our, our millions of fans. <laughs> I'm changing. I'm changing my outlook. To our, an optimist today. <laughs> hey, I was just talking to one of our dedicated listeners today. Oh, okay. So you know, our fans. You know, you know it's funny. I used to. I've done a couple of radio shows, and I did one. My first one ever was with a guy named Dion, who could sell you ice from wherever. This guy could. He's a bullshitter. Never delivered on it, but he could talk. But yeah, uh, yeah Dion. We did the Florida Combat Network, and we were live CBS Sports Radio. 
And I used to drive every Saturday down to Almerton Road to the CBS studios. And we filmed for like two hours. We've had, you know, Dana White on the show. We had a bunch of people. But I remember his big catch was, oh, sponsors. You know, we have over 150,000 listeners and blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking in my head, man, it's a Saturday morning. It was like 10 o'clock. I know for a fact, I only know like 10 people on my side that are listening to right. this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I'm learning, man. I mean, I, I hate to say, but I've seen the same thing. You know, I, I've seen some people been there at the startup of their, of their company. You know, I know that for a fact, their customer base was with our students. And yet I'm, I'm seeing their online persona you know, talking about all this stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yep. like, that's that's yeah. what I love about social media, Facebook. I know people personally, and I'm like, that's bullshit. I know you personally. I know that's not true. <laughs> it's fake book. You guys there? Froze up. You guys there? Hello? There you are. We lost you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Disappeared for a minute. Our our internet's been a little weird. We had some big storms come through the last couple of days and it's been a little interesting. <laughs> no problem. Well, I'm glad to see you guys are still doing good, still doing your thing. Yeah, we're getting there. Getting there. Yeah, uh, we're we're too stubborn not to. <laughs> so, <laughs> my my superpower is stubbornness. So <laughs> Just outlast them all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like Chris Hoyter said, you know, it wasn't about who was the best. It wasn't about who had the best technique. It was about who was left, you know. And, and man, if that's not true in just about all walks of life, you know, you've seen some people, they, man, they had the most promise, but they, their longevity was not very good. You know, they yeah. got quick, moved on. Then you got guys like me. I'm, I'm dumb and slow, but, <laughs> but when I latch on to something, you know, good luck. You're like, the, what's that that story, the little train that could? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back to your question. Oh, I was going to say, because what, <laughs> one of the things that we, we like with, uh, uh, with our podcast and the like is, you know, just kind of one, going with the premise that a lot of our people, you know, don't really know everybody's story. Uh, so how did you get started in martial arts? I know you have a very long, long history. You've done just about everything there is. So, uh, how, how did you get started down this whole pathway? And uh, how did you get where you're at? Um, it's, martial arts has always been like a passion for me. Uh, maybe Bruce Lee movies and things growing up, watching Kung Fu Theater and things like that. <clears throat> but I always wanted to do martial arts. And then um, my parents 
I was born in Gary, Indiana. Same hospital as the Jackson Five and Michael Jackson and all that. And as a small town built around a mill, my dad worked in the mill for like 30 something years. And then I uh, took an early retirement and then they were either gonna move to Florida or Arizona. And I always wanted to do martial arts, but where we lived, there was nothing close by. Like the, like the nearest hospital was like 30 minutes away. So for a martial arts school, there was nothing really close by. So that was one of our deals because I was giving away all my family, my friends and everything else. I was eight, going to be nine. And uh, that was one of our deals that we had that wherever we moved to Tampa, uh, I get to do martial arts. So they lived up to their promise and that's what happened. So what, what was your first art? Kempo Karate. Kempo, nice. American Kempo? Uh, yeah, with a guy named C.J. Bader. Okay. Which now that, funny was story that about like that. Was that system or, or which? which uh, I don't, I was a kid. So it was years okay. ago. So I just remember he's actually, uh, I, I talked to somebody that knows him. Uh, I, ran, I ran into somebody a couple years ago. C.J. is actually in Tennessee and is a Buddhist monk now. And wow. owns a monastery and all this in Tennessee, plus a Cajun restaurant. So he's doing really good over there now. Uh, funny story about him. I remember we were kids and we were at a tournament and uh, they were calling for him. They couldn't find him. So they call him Master Bader because his name was CJ Bader. Oh, Master Bader. Oh, no. Master Bader, please come oh. to the front. And he comes running. No, no, no. Call me Sheehan Bader. Don't call me Master Bader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I started with that. Uh, Kempo Karate, and then uh, CJ closed down uh, about two years later. And actually, he merged with uh, a guy named Fred Montesino, and Fred's still in the area teaching. Fred's like an eighth or a ninth degree in Taekwondo, and uh, I think eighth degree in Aikido Jiu Jitsu. And okay. uh, so I, I merged over with them, and then they split up after a couple of years, and I stayed with Fred. So that was the beginning of my like long journey, and I got my first uh, black belt in any style under Fred when I was fourteen. Uh, in Taekwondo, and okay. then I got a black belt later on to him when I could jiu-jitsu, and, ju and just from there, just kept on evolving, and then I started learning. I uh, had a buddy of mine that trained, uh, Eddie Dominguez, who had American Dragon Dojo. He brought in Joe Lewis, and Joe Lewis Fighting System, so I went to check out the seminar, and that one seminar, I remember, opened my eyes up to, like, all these questions that I've had, because I was always one of those guys that thought outside the box. Like, every time we were doing, like, reverse punches and stepping when we punch, I was always like, well, I never seen nobody fight like that in the street. You right. know, how does that really work? Oh, just do it. This is how you're supposed to do it. You punch with these two knuckles and blah, blah, blah. And you, you just had to do it. Then you had to do the forms and all that. And I did them all because you had to do it for your belt rank. And then when I taught, I had to teach the forms. I just never saw the importance in it, I guess. I saw, you know, what they were meaning. But in my aspect from street, you know, experience, I was just like, I just don't see it. So uh, I got to Joe Lewis's seminar. And that one seminar with him and Mike Allen, I remember, man, my eyes opened up so big. Like all my answers, like questions, I mean, were answered in that seminar. And I was just like in awe of this guy. And he was in his 50s at the time, I think, when I met Joe. And he was still shredded. But le le legendary fighter from his day, though. Oh, yeah. And uh, story, man, I'm so mad, too, because he signed. I had a black and white picture uh, when Bruce Lee cornered him for a tournament and ra raised his hand at the very end when he won, he signed it for me. And oh, I don't know what I ever did with that picture, man. I'm, it's somewhere in my office. I don't know where I put it, man. And yeah. uh, so I remember him. Everything he, he showed us was backed by science and is always right. keeping your hands up. Everything made sense. And when I asked the question, 
you had an answer like that. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. It's not like just do it because this is the way we were taught. It made right. sense to me. And that actually, I was probably about 20 at that point. That opened up my, my whole mindset to, to martial arts and training and everything else and made my striking go up tenfold probably in that one seminar. Yeah. And that so was that, uh, a lot of a lot of mine because ta Taekwondo was my first uh, black belt as well. We were under the uh, Jun Ri system of uh, of Taekwondo, and yeah, I remember a lot of that. And then then I went to police academy, and and then shortly after the academy, that was my first taste of a little bit more full contact. And then after that, I found Okinawan Gojuru with my current instructor, and. Yeah, man, it was it was one once that kind of that, that epiphany hit, it made me go back and relook at everything I had learned. Now some of it, I'll admit, man, I threw out the window. And some of it I now understood why we were doing certain things. It's like Goju, when we train, it's like most of these big stances like Shiko Dodge. Shiko Dodge is like a, a really deep horse stance where your your thighs go parallel to the ground. You're like, you don't fight there, but you develop strength in your quads. You develop strength in your legs from those positions in your training. So then I was like, all right, now I'm kind of understanding at least a little bit, you know, that I'm not going to fight in that stance, but as a training method, you know, my legs are stronger, way stronger than they ever were. You know, and now people just, you know, they put a name to it, you know, they put it in like a, different workout system or <laughs> or whatever yeah, yeah but, that's true but everything and what's funny then uh i changed from that to uh to uh ross and hurley ross kellen and david hurley started teaching in my gym in 2003 so i brought them and they were both brown belts at the time and they okay. were teaching jiu-jitsu so they would come up on tuesday and thursdays and teach jiu-jitsu at my gym nice. and uh so that's my my getting into but but I dabbled into jujitsu in '98 with Shane Dunn, who used to own I don't know if he's still around SPMF. Yeah, Shane Dunn was an old school wrestling guy, and at the time he had a guy named Alex the Chief Hunter, who was in the UFC. I think he was in UFC seven or eight. But they did a seminar at an Aikido school, and I remember I was 18. I went to it, and I remember checking them out. And I was like, man, this is so cool. I want to you know want to learn this blah 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 because I remember watching Quace Gracie and right. the first two or three. Uh, uh, UFCs, and I was like, man, how does this little guy in pajamas beat everybody? You know, I was everybody was picking everybody else because we always talked about what style is the best: kung fu, karate, taekwondo, right, yeah. judo, jujitsu, whatever. And then this little guy beat everybody, and the way he did it looked like, how do you just finish that guy? You know, so I was in awe, and but there was nothing in this area. So I remember dabbling into it with Shane Dunn '98, but then he was so far in St. Pete, I never really did it again until I brought Ross and Hurley in 2003 to my gym and they started teaching and then from that point on i've been doing jiu-jitsu almost every day nice so now uh, go ahead once i started going down that pathway of jiu-jitsu same thing once i started learning jiu-jitsu it made me go back and you know which i i still to this day even do it in jiu-jitsu i mean i've been doing it now for for 20 some odd years and i'll learn or see a new tweak today and i'll go back and almost like relook at everything of, of how that now changes everything prior 
how did jujitsu at that point when you started incorporating that into your other knowledge did you did you suddenly find that jujitsu was helping you in other parts of your martial arts yeah and it showed me um what i loved about jujitsu from day one was you learn something and then you're always going to go live rolling and yeah. you have to actually try to put that move on someone that's resisting you and that to me was like man because we sparred with the stand-up uh, arts and stuff like that but a lot yeah. of it was like just boom trying to score points or trying to hit it wasn't nothing specific like i'm looking to do this i'm looking to control you i'm looking to make you tap with this one move and that really got me going wow so if i could control somebody and they know this is coming and i can submit them this is a whole different thing for me you know so uh that really opened my eyes and then i was very fortunate at that time because you're, you're old school I remember back then we we still talk about this. A purple belt was like a unicorn. So if oh, you man. saw a purple yeah. belt, <laughs> you were like, "Man, that dude's a badass. He could probably beat half the black belts on all these other styles, and this and that because it's a purple belt in jujitsu." But uh, so the first black belt that I actually came in contact with was Rob when he moved down here in two thousand four, and wow, me okay. and him are really great friends right now, Rob Khan and. Uh, we, I was laughing with him. I go, if you would have got to Tampa in 2003, I might have been under you instead of Ross and Hurley because that's when they started teaching in my gym and you were here in Tampa. They were coming from Lakeland. Right. So, but everything happens for a reason. Uh, but then Carl Malenko, straight out of pride, came in at about 2005 and he became uh, part of our team and I was his main training partner because he liked training during the day. So that's where my catch wrestling came in, was from Carl okay. Malenko. And then about 2006, I want to say, I had a big dude come in in the door, big uh, older German guy. And I knew who he was just from, you know, the internet, uh, Carl Gotch. He was oh, looking yeah. at Carl Malenko. And I was like, I stopped my class. I made everybody bow to him. And I brought him in. I knew who he was. I, I talked to him. I go, let me call Carl now. He's not here. Carl drove 30 minutes like a madman to get to, to our gym. Went to lunch with him, came back and goes, hey, man, Gotch wants to know if he could teach at your gym for, you know, a couple of days a week. Go, yeah. So, oh, yeah. So I got What's to learn on for like three months from Carl Gotch and stuff before he passed away and stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah Carl, Carl was one of those guys because we were, we were West Coast, and his name – I, I love martial arts history. And so once I got into the grappling arts with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it made me start – to search beyond, you know, jujitsu. So maybe start looking into catch wrestling, collegiate wrestling, folk style. I mean, you name it. I was, I was looking into it to find histories. And yeah, I mean, what, what a influential individual, you know, that, that would have been incredible to, to even have the chance. He's one I would have loved to have even met him, let alone train with him. And it's funny because Maria, uh, who used to train with me, and she's with Rob now. Me and Maria have these conversations every now and then. She said, you and Rob are very fortunate to have a lot of the experiences you guys have, but you guys don't look at it that way now because you guys went through it. Like, Rob, uh, I have stories of going to dinner with Carl Gotch, picking his brain and telling us stuff. And then Rob, same thing. He, he had dinner with Helio. And he's sitting there oh, having damn. dinner with Helio, Helio <laughs> giving a hug and this and that. I'm like, you know what, Maria? Cause we're in this every day and it's like, a, you know, you're hustling every day. You don't yeah. stop to enjoy it and realize then I did do that, you know, and, right. and this yeah. is yeah. Well, 
Well, and that's where, I guess, like we were talking with Caesar the other day, and, uh, you know, we were talking about, I mean, way back in, in, in the day, we didn't consider this special. We still don't, to be honest. You just do it. We, I mean, if it wasn't for social media, I mean, we didn't take pictures back then. No. I mean, now, if you're not taking a picture at the end of every class, people look at you weird. I mean, <laughs> and back then, I mean, we just trained. You came in, uh, granted, it was real film back when, <laughs> when we started. Digital didn't even exist yet. Um, the whole digital cameras didn't even come in until a little bit later. Yeah, but now, shoot, man, like I said, if, if people aren't taking pictures, the whole idea of people documenting their journey now, you know, is, is now a real thing. <coughs> Yeah, whereas before we just train. I know, and that's what we focused on. Now I think the new generation focuses more on the pictures and less on the training. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I wish to go back and just most of it's just memory until I get Alzheimer's or dementia when I get older. You know, yep. I just have memories. Yep. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, I wish probably, I had pictures uh, and videos. There's probably, I mean, there's so few photos from the first decade that we train. I mean, just even in general. You know, and there's so much more. I mean, there's probably more pictures from this year alone <laughs> than there probably has been throughout most of our entire training career. Yeah. Um, well, and, and like you said, in, in a lot of the stuff, it's looking back on those memories. Because during the time period, you know, I, I just really dug just even being around these people, you know, uh, as part of training. You know, like I remember, this goes back, uh, this would be about 96. So Caesar comes in. So he's the only black belt. I mean, uh, the Gracies were the only black belts I knew of. Um, so 96, so we meet Caesar. David Camarillo, the head instructor for jiu-jitsu and, and the like for AKA is a blue belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. David Terrell is a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. And I think at the time period, the only purple belt I knew was Kurt Ocean. Um, you know, and now you look at where some of these individuals are in their careers, you know, and where they're at in, in you know, different people's, you know, portions, you know, how like Carl Gotch. I mean, I, I look at him as, a, as an influential figure only from having looked up like catch wrestling and, and things of that nature. But he would, he was all the way out here in the East Coast. I was West Coast, man. I never thought I'd even get a chance to uh, to even meet him. You know. Yeah, but then you go back to the beginning of the UFCs, and you see you got the Gracies with their grappling style, you know, with Helio Carlson and all those guys, and then you have the other side with Ken Shamrock lines them, which is catch wrestling. Right. So you always had catch wrestling and jiu-jitsu going at it, and then later on we had Sakuraba. So right. it's always they're always like the anti going against each other, but they're both so similar. See, yeah. and that was that was the different part for us because we had Lions Den pretty much in our backyard. Yeah. So out there in the West Coast, I remember watching the first UFC in 1993, and and I, I heard about the Gracies, I read about them in magazines, but for me, my oh shit moment was when they said Ken Shamrock fighting out of Lockford, California. I mean, I thought, I mean, we lived in a small town. Like, you were talking about where you were at compared to anything else. Yeah. 
was a small town out in the middle of nowhere, and Lockford was next to us. So when we saw Ken on for, on the first UFC, I was like, holy shit, they're right there. Yeah. <laughs> they're 10 minutes down the road. You know, so so that was like a big deal for us. And then um, I, I had a chance to, uh, to meet uh, Ken only. I never met Frank. Uh, met Ken quite a bit because – uh, a former training partner of mine, Vernon White, we trained Taekwondo as kids together and graduated high school together. He turns out, you know, he becomes Ken's first student. Over the he went to high school with Vernon Tiger White? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. They and were so, training partners in our podunk little town. Right. In our little tiny little Taekwondo school. <laughs> so like I said, so, so Ver Vernon becomes Ken's first student before the Lions Den even has a name. You know, when, when they were just, you know, training together. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting, you know, and, and eventually, so the people who are training right now will eventually be us and have those same stories that they're going to tell about the, the couple people that they had a chance to meet with that eventually became UFC superstars or, or jujitsu world champions or, or things of that nature. And they're going to be like, I remember when that dude was a white belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how times go by and uh and you see people that are still going. One thing I do notice, because you're a lifelong martial artist also, you always see people that stop training or quit for some reason or another, because you know, people quit for different reasons. Could be personal, could be financial, could be anything. But I always say people always come back. Yeah. And they, they all have the same thing when they come back. They all go, man. I wish I would have stuck it out when you you stayed. I wish I would have stayed. I wonder how good I would have been. That's the same thing they all said. Yep. Well, and, and even the same thing, just, I mean, because we, we took a break when we moved out to Florida because we didn't know during that time period what life was going to look like. So we moved out for business, not for gym business, but for, for personal business. And, you know, I, I had it completely in my mind. We closed our school in California, and I thought, man, I'm going to come out. And I get to concentrate on me now for a little bit. So I'm just going to come out and I'm going to train and I get to be a student again for a while. I don't have to stress. I don't, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm working 80 hour work weeks and I'm, I'm not training. I'm not seeing the sun at all. I'm leaving the house when it's dark. I'm coming home when it's dark. Um, you know, and the next thing I know, three years has gone by. And I know then I got a vitamin D deficiency, um, <laughs> wow. put on a few pounds and everything else. And then, so we, we said the same thing, but purely from that health side of it going, that was the worst mistake, not moving to Florida, but taking that time off. concentrating so heavily on business that we forgot to take care of ourselves. Um, that was one of the worst mistakes I ever made. It happens to all of us. It, uh, I took a time there where I had stopped fighting and I focused on um, on the fighters only. So I wasn't training as hard and I was slacking, but I was putting my body on the line still. So I would get these little nagging injuries and then one thing after another. And then I look and I was like, man, I'm probably the heaviest I've been <laughs> in a while. My cardio sucks and this and that, but you know, you're still focused on the fighters. And then uh, 2018 is when my dad passed and I had uh, – Two of my animals, too, had uh, Pipe, uh, Precious, who was 13 years old. She passed away four days before my dad. And then Tigger, who I had since for 16 years since he was a pup, uh, he passed away in May of that year. 
So it was just like, it was a terrible year for me. And I had all these fighters coming and going and uh, not to sound like an asshole, <clears throat> but you know how it is. You got a lot of these fighters that come in and they train with you from scratch for five, six years and they learn everything from you. And then all of a sudden they got other people in their ear and they want to wipe their hands of you and they leave and they go somewhere else. And then that other coach takes the credit for it and stuff. And I got kind of burnt out with that. And I was like, man, none of these guys appreciate anything. I'm putting my, my health, my body, everything on the line. So after my dad, the final straw was my dad passed in end of 2018. And I go, you know what? 2019, I'm not going to go to tournaments. I'm not going to fights. I'm not going to corner nobody. I'm going to take that year for me. I have other coaches that can do that and other fighters that can do that if those guys want to stay loyal to me. And uh, so I put a focus on myself. I started eating better, started training again, started enjoying doing this again because there was a time there I didn't love it anymore. I hated it. I was even in talks of maybe selling the gym and doing something different. I just got burnt out with the people taking, taking, taking. And, you know, I don't, I don't have anything else to give. So that year was really good for me. It gave me time to refocus uh, on what I loved and get my fire and my passion back. And I remember I weeded out a lot of guys that or girls that I weren't going to stick around. So they ended up going off because they, they weren't getting what they wanted from me as far as like cornering or coaching or whatever else, even though I still trained them, but they wanted to, you know, everything and they wouldn't give me my time. So I said, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. So, uh, so fast forward now, I started cornering again, 2020, uh, I cornered, uh, actually cornered December of 2019 in Philadelphia. And then I cornered, for uh, Combat America, actually it was M1, M1 Global in Miami, uh, beginning of the year before all this crazy stuff started right, happening. Yeah. So I started getting back into it, man, my fire was back. I was like, man, I, you know, I miss doing this. You know, you miss being in the corner, you miss being in the locker room, you miss wrapping hands, you miss, you know, getting the fighter ready, ready for them to walk out. All those little things, you know, were things that I missed because I went probably 15 years straight no break, cornered probably over a thousand people because there was times that I remember me and Ross Kellen would corner five, six guys in one night for RFC because we had, we had like the biggest, we had 30 pro fighters at a time from 2005 to 2008. So we were always like one corner to the next. There was even one time, my first fight in 2006 for RFC, that I was the third fight. Matt Royal versus Matt Brown was the fight oh, wow. right before me. So they bring Matt back and then they go, all right, you're next. Boom. I went, fought. And Joe gave me a buffer after my fight, which is the fourth fight. I showered, dressed up, boom, and cornered six guys that night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I got my passion back now and my focus now. I found that balance that I needed. So I'm still staying in shape and focusing on me. But at the same time, I'm able to focus on the fighters too at this point. Right. Well, and that's where I, I don't think a lot of the fighters truly understand, you know, especially right now, you know, when, when you're working with somebody, you know, obviously, I mean, they, they, they pay their, their academy memberships or whatever, but that, that's not even close to what a coach actually puts into an individual. That, that academy membership, I mean, that's, that's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what, what a coach actually invests, you know, into the, uh, into the fighter and into that person. You know, and I don't think most fighters even even see that, 
know, because like I said, I mean, they're they're just bouncing around. You know, they like said the, the bigger their name becomes, the more voices start to get into their ear because now everybody wants to connect themselves to that person, so that if they ever make it big, they want their name associated with them as well. And then if they start to lose, then watch those people disappear. They'll, they'll, they'll go on to the next person they can latch themselves on to. But as a coach, you know, you're there. I, as we tell people, like, when we go to the fights, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm there. I love, I love when we win 100%, and I love going out and partying with the team. But when you got six guys on a card, man, it's an amazing feeling if all six can win. You know, but the reality is not everybody does. So while some of the team is celebrating, some of the team is still licking their wounds. And that's usually where the coaches are. So we don't yeah. typically get all the celebrations. We're usually we're still usually trying to manage the recovery from those losses and, and keeping the rest of that team's energy high, you know, even though like I said they, they didn't have the night they wanted. Um and then there's a lot of extra stuff that, that the coaches tend to do in there, and, and it really gets overlooked by, uh, by most of the fighters. Because, I mean, until they've invested themselves like that, most of them don't really truly feel or understand what that even is like. You know, what makes me laugh a little bit, and it's, it's a family thing, I guess, people that are real close to their family, a lot of times when a fighter gets some kind of success, the fighter looks at the coach like the coach is riding the fighter's coattails. But yeah. they didn't see how we got them there from scratch. And the reason why they're there is because of us, you know, mainly leading them on the right path and then listening and, and getting them there. But they think that, oh, they're just, you can find another coach. This guy's just right. They don't see, like you said, everything that we do for them. When they're losing, we're there for them. When they're winning, we're there for them. When they're cutting weight, when they think they can't make weight, when they think they can't beat this person, all those little things we're there for. We wear so many different hats and we're almost like a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. But uh like I don't agree with I'm not gonna say no names where someone was saying the other day that they don't need a corner. Cause I know a lot of fights that I've been in and I've cornered because we see we got that outside perspective plus the experience of being in so many corners and fights that I've won fights because look, we're losing here, you need to win this round, or look, the body shots there when they're doing this, or boom, when you do this, do this to set this up. And if the fighter listens, which I love the fighters you corner that are like a remote control, feels like you're playing a video game, they listen to everything, and as soon as you call something, they do it. Those are probably the most easy nights to, to have. And then you have the ones that are like a broken remote control that you're like, ah, it's not working. So <laughs> Nothing's I, going I, I off think, like you did in training. Um, yeah, and then, and then that's another thing. They get used to hearing our voices in training because we're telling them in training what to do. Right. Watch out for this. Do this. Do this now do that and then guess what it's a it's a team thing so when we go out there they're here but we're their voices here and they could hear us even though there's a loud crowd if it's a legit fighter they can hear us and they pick up on stuff granted right. at the end of the day it's the fighter that's out there and 100%. mentally and physically it's on you if you put the right preparation and get ready for that fight and 80 percent of it if you're mentally boom i'm there and i got that fire and i'm ready to fight no matter what happens but a lot of times things happen and people see, you know, the same fighters out there, but their mind is somewhere else because business, life, all kinds of stuff can happen. People don't yeah. see none of that stuff. Well, I mean, it's, you know, like you were talking about, I, I 
I tell the people here all the time when we're like, we, we are just like just a jujitsu tournament alone. You know, I've had some people come up to me and, you know, they're like, man, you know, you don't really give really specific instructions. I'm like, no, I'm like, I, I don't really, I'm like, I'm there to be the eyes you don't have. I'm there to, to show you the things that you're not seeing. But I'm like my job was in the gym. I said, my job as a coach was there. I said, so that when you're in that match, hopefully you already have a good path, a good decision-making process that's going to be in front of you. I said, and then my job is to be there to, like I said, to, to be the eyes you don't have, to, to maybe remind you of some of the things. I'm like, but like I was telling one of our, uh, one of our women, you know, you know, because uh, she was talking about self-defense. I said, well, I mean, I'm not going to be there to coach you in a self-defense scenario. I said, but I'm hoping that in the middle of that self-defense scenario, you'll hear my voice. That, that when, when something's happening and, and, and when lights are flashing in your eyes because somebody's pounding your face in, that my voice will be there to calm you, to set you back on that path, and then to hopefully get you to fight back and win. Because you know, it's, not, it's not always going to be there, but, but that's, you know, we push the team aspect a lot you know, because nobody, nobody gets their success by themselves. No. Nobody does. 100% blood, sweat, and tears. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm turning 49 this year. I'm not old, but I'm not a spring chicken by any means. I've got my injuries that I've accumulated over the years, you know, and things of that nature. And yet, you know, when we're here getting in some sparring or something of that nature, you know, most of the guys here don't even see that if I'm sparring five or six rounds to help them get ready, the headache I've got that night or the next day from just the, the toll it's taken on me over the years, you know, but that's the sacrifice that we're willing to put in to get them to that, you know, to that level. And so, yeah, it hurts really bad when you hear a fighter that just discounts all of that, you know, when, when they just say, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't need a team. Well, that's funny because the, the team's already invested in you. The team already spent their money. You know, they, they, they put it deep into your pockets. And now that your pockets are full, now you say you don't really need a team, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it's so true. What, what, what's one of your like highlight moments? Like if 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 you know you were going back and looking at at a time in your life as a, as coach or as a competitor or the like that you're like you know in in hindsight, man, that was pretty effing cool. Oh my god, to pick just one. Uh, that would be pretty hard. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, there was a lot, man. Um, probably my last fight, I fought at 145 uh, in 2009. And I remember I had a bad weight cut. The last 2.5 pounds was bad. My coaches, my boxing coaches' uh, scale was off. So uh, we had already agreed I was going to cut like 9 to 10 pounds the day of weigh-ins. Okay. And, wow. uh I ended up cutting 12.5 because the scale was off. And when I got there, I was over 2.5. So I had to cut those last 2.5. And uh, I remember it was so hard because I was so lean at that point. Right. And 
the next day I just felt like real lethargic and I still had trouble like warming up. I wasn't there mentally like I normally am. And I remember going out there and uh, the kids stunned me pretty good and uh, got me through me. And I spun into guard and started giving me some ground and pound. And I remember at that moment, I just clicked. And I was like, and, and on top of that, which a lot of people didn't know, the week before that fight too, I broke my hand. So oh, I wow. went for, uh, yeah, I was, we were training at uh, Champions in Lakeland, Ross's gym. We had like 30, 40 fighters out there. And I did a bunch of rounds. And then there was a young girl, she was about 16, that used to train with me. She had a kickboxing match coming up. And I was done. I was like, all right, that was my last hard sparring. I took my wraps off, took my gloves off. She goes, Garcia, let's do one more round, just kickboxing. I go, no, I already took my stuff off. She come out, we'll go light. I didn't wrap. I put my gloves back on, going light. I threw a light body shot. I caught her elbow in a weird position. And uh, I was like, that didn't feel right. So the next day, Sunday, I wake up. My hand is swollen and hurt so bad. So I call my boxing coach up. He comes to, to my house, looks at it. And says, yeah, it's it's fractured. I fractured that metacarpal right here, which now it's calcified. And uh, he goes, I mean, you know, you're fighting this week. You can still fight. I can wrap it. And once your body starts going, adrenaline right. kicks in, you probably won't feel it. I go, you know what? I put too much work into this fight camp. You know, I'm, I'm not going to let the, the promotion down either. I'm going to fight. I just keep it on a DL. So I go out there with all this stuff in my mind, bad weight cut. Hands hurt, you know, which is my main weapon. It's my right cross. And I'm like, well, I'm still going to fight. I got other weapons. I got elbows. I got knees. I got jiu-jitsu. I got kicks. I'll, I'll be fine. So I go out there, and I come out flat. So the kid catches me, ends up throwing me. And once he starts hitting me, and I, I kick him off, and I get back to my feet, that's when I said, I'm in a fight. And from that point on, I turned the tide, and I started beating the crap out of him. And uh, by I got him. I had him in so many different like submission attempts. I had him in arm bar. He worked out a triangle, another triangle. Took his back at the very end. I had his back punching him, and then the round ended. And then we go back out, and I could see because I pushed the pace. Because once I was hurt, it was like Ross used to call me the road runner because I always had good cardio, so I'd always push the pace, push the pace, push the pace. So I remember looking across, seeing he was tired, and I was like, I wasn't even thinking about my hand at that point. And I come out, and then I now. I'm more calm. I'm sticking. I'm moving. So he didn't want to get hit anymore. So he clenches me. When he clenches me, I knee him to the body. I could hear him go, huh. Oh. So I get the plum and I hit him again with a knee, huh. And then two mornings, huh. And he drops. And then I start uppercutting him on the way down. And then I go knee on belly and I just unload. They counted 10 punches before Hosgate pulled me off. Wow. And then when he pulled me off, I remember that was the most like amazing feeling because it had adversity. And, I, you know, I came back from that and that, you know, there's nothing like that feeling when you came back and you won and you broke someone's will. And I remember that probably was one of my highlights of my whole MMA martial arts career since being, you know, nine years old training in martial arts. Cause, and it's a funny story, Rob Kahn was there. And at the time me and Rob didn't like each other. We had some beef because of uh, people, he said, she said stuff. So okay. he told me after they goes, that was probably one of the best fights I've ever seen in person. And I, we didn't like each other, but I got so much respect for you after that fight because you came back from adversity and came back. And I go, yeah. And my hand was broken. A lot of people didn't know that. He, goes, he didn't know that either. Wow. <laughs> he just thought I had a bad weight cut, but he said he had so much respect for me after watching that fight because I came back. Anybody can go out there and be dominant, but if you can come back right. and, and come back from adversity and win, that shows you're truly a fighter. So that's probably my highlight. Nice, man. 
Well, it's like, I, did, did you hear the, uh, the interview? Uh, it was on the Rogan podcast. Um, oh, crap. One of Tyson's trainers. Uh, <clears throat> crap, I'm trying to remember his name. But he, he basically was outspoken, and he kind of talked about that same thing, about the definition of a fighter. He says, a fighter is only a fighter when he's been tested. You know, when he's actually been tested with adversity and put into a situation where he wasn't supposed to win, but he did. You yeah. know, kind of like you were saying, I mean, you got, you got put into that position, things didn't go your way, but then you had to dig down and fight your way back. And so that was a big, a big definition he talked about in that, uh, in that podcast, which I, which I thought was kind of cool, you know, because yeah, I mean, I talk about with the crew here all the time, everybody gets to look great when they're fresh. Everybody gets to look fantastic when they're winning, you know, but who are you is defined by the trenches. Who are you is defined by when you're put up against the wall and you're fatigued and it sucks. That's where you really come out. You know, not the not the you that you want everybody to see, but the real you, the one yep. that's 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 deep. You know that, and that's where you find out where's their real technique. That's where you find out where's their real habits. You know, do do they grit down and fight back? You know, do do they? You know, because you see you see some that once you break them, that's it. That that that's done. There's no more yep. fight. That like what once you heard that dude sounds when those first couple knees hit, you kind of knew at that point that I knew I broke his will at that point. Yeah, I turned. Yeah, that was it. You know, it's crazy about that because I watched that fight the other day uh, with a kid that quit on the stool, and I had that fight going one round apiece going into the third round, and that kid was five and zero, and all finishes like you could tell he was one of those kids that goes out there has great jujitsu goes out and like takes you down, looks for the sub, gets it, boom, he won first round. He got tested. This kid took all his subs, took all his strikes, and pushed him, and he couldn't finish this kid. So now right. he's sitting on the stool going to the third round, and he's, he broke mentally. He's like, man, I can't, I can't. And the coach is telling him, and it's Robert Drysdale. He's telling him, dude, you got this. I know you. You're a champion. Don't do this to yourself. And the kid just wouldn't listen. And later on, the kid ended up regretting not listening to him. All the kid really had to do was go out there and get one takedown and try to hold the kid down or, or do something, you know. But it was that close of a fight, and you just let it go like that. Yeah. Now he's got to live with that the rest of his life. Yep. Yep. Well, it's like uh, uh, listening to an interview with uh, with Ron Coleman, the, the former Mr. Olympia. <clears throat> you know, he's physically, he's all messed up, tons of back surgeries and everything else. But the part that haunts him, is looking back in time and knowing that at a pivotal point in his life that he could have got one more. You know, even though he he walks on crutches and he's got like 20-some-odd back surgeries, the part that haunts him is not the fact that he's he's physically broken and he can feel the the, the results of all that hard training, you know, but the part that still haunts him is, is exactly that. Knowing. It's funny that you brought that up because I had just watched that two days ago on Netflix. Ronnie Coleman. Yeah. yeah. I was flipping for a documentary to watch. And I said, yeah, I like Ronnie Coleman. Let me watch this. And it was great. I didn't know he had so many steel parts inside his body, hip yeah. replacements, neck issues. I was like, oh, my God. 
Yeah. He's had a lot of surgeries. Wait, like he, you say, he's had no regrets. Yeah. I, yeah. The, the regret he has is talking about that one going, he goes, I know I could have lifted it one more time. Yeah. And, and, and I've heard him now multiple times, um, you know, say that same thing. And it, it's as emotional for him, even in the last interview I just saw, which was like, you know, a couple weeks ago, where, I mean, he's, he's almost teary-eyed, you know, talking about, talking about that day. Yeah. I love watching, like, uh, like, I love The Last Dance. Did you watch that with the Bulls? Yeah. That was amazing to me because I grew up, you know, uh, being a Chicago Bulls fan in the 90s and, and the 80s. And uh, just watching Michael Jordan's mindset and his will to win and to make everybody around him better. And even though they were saying, oh, man, he was so mean to us, but, but none of them complained because they were winning championships and they were winning. But just that mindset, a lot of people don't understand. You know, it's, it pushes people for greatness. And to me, he's probably the greatest athlete in this century, maybe the greatest athlete ever to live, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I truly do think it's one of those hard ones because when you're driven like that and you win – you're great when you're driven like that and it just doesn't equate to the same results. People look at you like you're crazy, yeah. you know, but, it, but it's a crazy I'm willing to live with, you know, it's, you know, I I'd rather look back and truly say I did everything I could and it just didn't work out. I mean, I'm okay with knowing I gave it my all and the, the dude was just better than me that day than knowing that I got bested, but I had more in the gas tank left to go. You know, that, that I can't accept that those haunt, you know, like we said, like with Ron Coleman and the like, you know, and that's where those guys that are driven, you know, that's how they want to go out. Either we're going to go out on top, having given it our all, or if we get defeated, we're going to know that we gave it our all and not half-assed on the way and then play woulda, coulda, shoulda. And that's what I tell a lot of these fighters, man, because I was the same way when I fought where I competed in anything. I've always been real competitive. I always thought I never did enough. So I always had to be real careful that I didn't overtrain because yeah. sometimes overtraining is like not training at all. So I had to find that equal balance to push myself and know, all right, I have to give my body a rest. And I try to instill that into all my fighters, too. I push them. And I tell them, look, I'm not going to make you do anything I wouldn't do. And I'm not going to push you unless I thought there was something there in you to push you to that next level. And uh, a lot of them, you know, you can see they take it and they become better. And then a lot of them are like, ah, oh, I need somebody else. I need a different kind of coach because, you know, you're too rough or too hard on me or something. You know what I'm saying? It's just one of those things. And I go, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe this isn't a fit for you. Well, I mean, I tell them quite often because I, you know, sometimes, yeah, and, that, and that's the thing, like we were talking about earlier, okay, so a coach is investing, like if, you, if, if, a, if a person comes to me and says, this is what I want to do, you tell me that this is, this is what I want to accomplish, I'm in, and I'm, I'm going to push as hard as I think it's going to take to get you to that goal, but as a fighter, you better meet me halfway. If, if I'm going to give this much, then you got to meet me with the same intensity. 
You know, if I'm giving up a Saturday or a Sunday to come in for special training sessions, don't you dare call me up and say, I don't feel like it today. I'm going to take the day off. I gave up my day for you. You got to give me that same respect. You know, yep. that if you tell me this is what you want, you know, I, I agree, you know, that there's times where we got to read our body and we got to say, maybe we just can't push as hard today. But at the same time, like I said, it's, you know, don't tell me, you know, when, when, when this is what you want of me, then you don't get to be a hypocrite and slack off on your own because you don't feel like it. Cause I'm here, you know, I gave up my, you know, I gave up a day to go to the beach with my family to be in the gym, you know, so don't, don't suddenly leave me hanging. You know, it's like, come, come at me with the same intensity that you want for me. And that's what I'm going to bring to you. And the fighters, same way. If the fighters coming to you with that intensity, then they should have the same expectation of their coach to give that same commitment. And hopefully everybody comes in on that same page. Because if, if it goes the other way around, and I think most of the time it's the coach that gets left hanging, where the coach is saying, I'm coming in with that dedication because I got, I got 8, 10, 20, 30 fighters all coming in with that intensity so you don't get to back off. Yeah. And then that fighter, you know, was like, ah, I just don't feel like it today. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say all of them. But I'm going to say, I think fighters five, 10 years ago were a little more hungrier than they are now as far as like the new generation. Because well, everything, now. yeah. Well, I think like uh, like when I used to have those Saturday Sunday practices, and the guys told me, "Oh, we want extra," and and I would do it for them. I would have, like you said, twenty, thirty guys show up and have intense practices. I'm like, man, this is amazing. Now, I'll do the same thing on Saturday or Sunday and have three, maybe four people show up. If that, I'm like, yeah. the guys that say they wanted this, where are they at? Not even a phone call. Yeah. 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 But. Still love it, and I'm still stubborn, oh, yeah. and I'll still be there on that Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, I have to get going because I have to go run a summer camp. Awesome, man! Appreciate it. Love to uh, maybe you know in another month or so have another conversation. Yeah, we didn't even get to talk about WCFL or any of the other irons you got going on. I know, man. We started just talking about everything else, which is good. But yeah, definitely, just let me know when, and uh, I'll pencil you guys in and. Well, this time, I thought it was going to be 30 minutes. I'll, I'll do an hour or two, whatever you guys want. All right, man. Appreciate it. I right, appreciate you guys. Let me know when you guys uh, post it, and I'll share it and stuff. You got Love it, man. You. Thank you. Thanks, man. See you guys. Thank, Thank you, you for listening. listening. This is your host, David Lawson. And your other host, Melissa Lawson. We really appreciate being able to do this for you guys. We appreciate you giving us a listen. Uh, if you want to uh, follow us, go to uh, Instagram, submission underscore coalition, or give us a like on Facebook, submission coalition. Or uh, if you guys want to throw some donations, it's not like I'm going to turn it away. We're also always looking for sponsors. Just so. PM us at uh, any of our social media outlets. Awesome. Thank you.